0: Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to be our guest today. So let's get started. Sarah, of course, began her career at Consumer Law Group in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, where she represented consumers experiencing a personal financial crisis, such as debt collection harassment, identity theft, and predatory lending. It was a natural transition then when, after about four years, she opened her own office to expand her services to defending consumers, being sued by their credit card companies, and representing homeowners who are in foreclosure. Sarah is so committed to helping her clients overcome debt and financial issues that she's been a member of Connecticut's Bench Bar Foreclosure Committee for its first seven years, helping to draft foreclosure mediation rules and procedures to help more homeowners in saving their homes. She's also a member of the National Association of Consumer Advocates, whose members pledge to never represent business interests contrary to the rights and interests of consumers. And she's also the author of Got Debt? Dispatches from the Frontlines of America's Financial Crisis. It's a selection of stories about working with people in debt over the last 10 years. So we are so happy to have Sarah here as a guest today on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. We are going to have so much to discuss. So welcome, Sarah.
1: Thanks so much. So happy to be here.
0: Great, great. So I want to start out today just getting people just letting people get to know a little bit about you and kind of your journey to becoming an attorney. Is this something that you always knew that did you did you want to fight for the people even as a child? Not at all. Or,
1: no. <laughs> no. No. I wanted to be a teacher and I became a teacher. Um I was a French major in college and I became a teacher. And I liked it a lot, but I um, I had been oddly steered away from learning other languages in, in addition to French. And therefore, you know, as a, a a modern language teacher in the 90s and 2000s, you, you really need to know more than one language in order to, to hold down a full-time job in the public school. And so that didn't really last very long. Um, and I went out and did a few other things, and I landed a job with an attorney who was blind. She worked as an assistant attorney general for the state of Connecticut. She had a guide dog, and the attorney general's office provided her a staff person to manage all the paper, manage all the paperwork, mm-hmm. manage the emails, and things like that. So um, I was hired to drive her. I mean, the 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 job posting was like, it was this: it was reader needed for blind attorney must have driver's license. Call this number. And my mother <laughs> saw it in the paper. My mother saw it, told me about it. She applied. She canceled her interview the day before thinking they wouldn't have time to fill her spot with someone to compete with me. Yeah. And turns out they interviewed 75 people, narrowed it down to five, and I got the job. So, oh, wonderful. Wow. Um, that wasn't so much a, you know, and I guess one of the questions they told me after that everybody who didn't make the cut was mostly because they were asked, why do you want this job? And they said, because I like to read. And I was one of the few people that said, well, it might be an interesting way to see if I want to go to law school. And i and I can read out loud pretty clearly, pretty you know without stumbling as well. I think that helped, so I got the job. I followed this attorney around for two and a half years, and it really was more like I wanted to just move up, I wanted to get away from my thirteen dollar an hour job. There were paralegal position openings, and I applied for them, and they wouldn't hire me for them, so Uh-oh. I said forget it. You know, they want to keep me in this job because it's easier than training someone new instead of allowing me to advance my career as a paralegal with the attorney general's office in Connecticut. And so I went out and I, I just, I left that job and I said, fine, I'll just go get, you know what? Forget it. I'll just go to law school. (laughs) You know, like in the end, I'll just go to law school. A girlfriend from undergrad was going to university of Connecticut and I bumped into her here in Hartford and we were talking and we had hung out a bit and she knew I was trying to make a decision. And she said, I'll give you all my LSAT study books. And that was it. And I, I studied for the LSATs and I got into UConn and I lived five blocks away and I walked to class and I just was doing it to, for better job training. Really, it was to get away from a $13 an hour job. So that was like my that. motivation.
0: <laughs> and did you, it was there, a, is there a point that you've ever regretted that or did it work out no. better than you thought?
1: As a 28- or 29-year-old who had been making $13 an hour and working for people who weren't as smart as me for multiple years, I was happy to be in school again. I was actually a part-time student in the first year, which is an option UConn offers, which I think was a good transition for me. I worked during the day. Most days i temped or something, and then I had classes. So that was fantastic. And I knew by the time I was actually a student, you know, that year, year-long year process it takes to apply and, and take the LSATs and get in and start start classes... I had started to tune into what did I want to do if I was going to be a lawyer. And I really enjoyed the work I did with the, with the blind attorney. She represented the department of children and families and she helped the department determine whether families should be um, reunited or um, whether their parental rights should be terminated. And that was very interesting work. It was very social work based, you know, um, which was aligned with my teaching genes, you know, and, um, And so I figured when I went to law school and graduated, I could do that. I could go into juvenile law. I could do family law. My mother had been divorced. My parents got divorced and it was a messy divorce. And I felt like women needed um, a better voice in their divorce. My mother always felt, you know, so I had some motivators. I realized there were things I could do with this law degree. And I knew I wanted, you know, going as an older, you know, an older person, I was 31 when I graduated, 30 when I graduated. I knew I didn't want to be what I call a corporate whore. It was just me. That was my way of saying, I want to do good with my law degree. I'm not doing this second career, you know, to bill 2,500 hours a year and to make some corporation rich. So um, I was lucky when I landed that job at Consumer Law Group. It was aligned with my sort of public interest career goals. And Mm -hmm. it was, I joke that it was like a public interest job with a paycheck because it was a private firm. Um, And I got to do, you know, white hat work. Always represent the little guy. It was really, yeah. really fun and exciting.
0: So I want to talk about you starting your own firm and what motivated you to do that. But before that, I just kind of want to dig a little deeper into this. You know, you have a helping heart, it sounds like. And I wonder, I always wonder kind of where that comes from for people. So, you know, in your case, were your were your parents public servants? Were they teachers? Were they helpers in other ways? You know, did were they medical professionals? What, what did they right.
1: do? My mother had been a teacher. You know, she grew up in the 40s, 50s. And, mm-hmm. you know, she would, she would sort of say with dismay, you know, women's mm-hmm. options back then were become a nurse, become a teacher or get married. And right. did. So she's like, I can't stand the sight of blood. I became a teacher. And I, I felt that as a child, I, I used to try to play school, like with my friends when I was five or six or seven, I would say, hey, you know, I'd set up chairs in my room or wherever. And we'd play yeah. school right so I, I kind of had it I don't know whether it was learned or from an in, you know, I think that's sort of nature versus nurture you never really know yeah um and I felt that yeah and that's why I was I think I was consistently I, w- I would bring that to to the jobs I did right I I'd like to explain things to people in a way that's helps them understand instead of treating them like they should already know and they're dumb right like I have a a good way I loved customer service jobs I had some customer service jobs, like at L.L. Bean, because I used to live in Maine, and I got a job at L.L. Bean taking orders on the phone. And I, I I knew that was customer service was very important. And I think that's a really good foundation for how I handle my clients and how I work right. with my clients. It's Customer right. service. It's all the customer yeah. service. And that helps you so much, because when they know you care and they feel well taken care of as far as that, you know, the responding to them and things like that, then they are very forgiving when you make mistakes, Right. which right. any woman attorney out there is so nervous about making mistakes. I don't know how nervous men are about making mistakes, but women are really <laughs> nervous about making mistakes. And uh, if you, yeah. yeah, if you approach it all with just being a hundred percent honest, like, Oh my God, I am so sorry. Your emails keep going into my spam folder and I keep missing them. I'm so sorry, but let me try to figure that out and that hopefully will never happen again. Or let me, you know, and you just kind of work around it and make be very transparent about communication issues or whatever's going on. And they are very forgiving. That's been a real blessing as a business owner.
0: Yeah, yeah. I can see where that would be really beneficial to have had that experience. And and it's interesting because there are some people who would work in customer service jobs and say, oh, my God, I hated that. That was the worst thing ever <laughs> because I don't like people complaining to me all day or whatever. And so it's really interesting mm. to hear your perspective and go, what a great foundational you know, skill builder that was for me for what you know, I'm doing today. Okay.
1: I I think that, um, and this, this can kind of trickle down to business owners sort of teaching new staff members, you know, everything we do as a lawyer or as a business owner, everything that happens in that firm has our name attached to it. So anytime mm-hmm. I took a call, I also worked, um, customer service for UPS, again, two big companies where mm-hmm. everything I did was, you know, attached to that company name. It would, you know, if, if I right. had a bad experience, then LL Bean or UPS was a bad company. I had to be very aware of that. And that wasn't something they were very clear about in the training, but I kind of understood that. So mm-hmm. when I worked at that job at Consumer Law Group, I knew every time I signed my name to something, I was signing it on behalf of Consumer Law Group, and I had to be very conscious of that. So mm-hmm. that you know, now that I pick, I pick the staff members who get that about working for me. I pick yeah. staff members who I and I train. If I hear that the tone on the phone isn't the way I would like. know, the way I would have my staff speak to my clients, I train around that or I reassign work. I did have a paralegal and I could just start to hear after several months, she just didn't like taking intake calls. I could just hear the tone and I was like, I got to get her off the phone and get someone else on the phone. Um, And or that person just is no longer a good fit for your business. So being aware of of how you want to present to the world um, is important. And then your staff all have to do that for you as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is one of the big challenges of women law firm owners is, you know, when you're hiring staff and training, I'll, we really have to look carefully at some people, no matter how much you train them, no matter how much, you know, they're, they're smart, they're great. Mm-hmm. They may not have that certain something that makes it um, easy easier for them to be kind of in that positive, uplifting, helping sort of, space. It may just be who they are, not who they are. And and I think, you know, you know it's so important to make sure that we really match, we marry people, yeah. the job with their strengths. You know, and we don't try to put a square peg in a round hole while we're, when we're and, hiring people, you know?
1: And again, I think that um, you hear a lot of business owners say, and I hear this from my clients too, uh, like I'm working with this person right now and He's like, yeah, I'm bringing in an office manager. This office manager is going to get my business in the right direction so that I'm not running in a million, you know, dealing with it all. And, you know, fast forward a couple months, I'm like, hey, is that office manager working out? Not at all. Not at all. They're not working out at all. But you know what? I'm going to wait through the holidays to fire them. And, you know, and so I think that, um, let me go back to, you sort of asked how I made the leap to owning my own practice. Well, I, the consumer law group gig was amazing. I learned so much, was so well mentored but I was sort of losing the emphasis, the enthusiasm mm-hmm. for plaintiff side work. I think that the, the, there was just something that was no longer, I think that the industry changed, you know, debt collection harassment was sort of evolving and there was less of it. And I just, there was, I don't know, there's something about it. And I had a girlfriend who was doing document review from home and making pretty good money doing it. I thought mm-hmm. I need a break from, from what I'm doing. I think I will try to get that job and work from home. And I got that job and, but within a couple of weeks, my um, my former boss, who I maintained a good relationship with, he said, you remember all those little old ladies you were helping with their small claims? Because we would volunteer for like the elder law clinic, the elder law um, legal services unit. And uh, and I would counsel people through their small claim, like being sued in small claims. It's like all those little, little old ladies, they don't have trials. And they're calling back and we don't represent, we don't defend. You know, we only bring plaintiff side work. So should I refer these people to you? And I was like, sure. So I just essentially grew a practice helping consumers defend against debt collection. And nobody, other than bankruptcy attorneys, nobody was doing this. Nobody was making a practice of of debt defense, you know, sort of exclusively. And then I help people, you know, all the other related stuff, credit report issues and things like that. And that grew and I was doing pretty well sitting alone in a home office, eventually a small office close to my house. And um, I did a lot of paid consultations because that can really Bridge, bridge your budget gaps is charging mm-hmm. for your time. That's a whole other podcast episode, Davina. So <laughs> paid consultations. But and then I started to get referrals for foreclosure help, and this was just before the bubble burst in 2008. I think I had done three, right. or, three or four in 2007, and then 2008 was upon us. They, they created that bench bar foreclosure committee. Actually, my old boss was invited to be on that committee, and he gave the opportunity to me, which was great. And uh we sort of developed our, our state's foreclosure mediation program, our free foreclosure mediation program through the courts. And then I then I started to feel completely overworked and burnt out. And I was working more hours and working harder for less thanks and less money. And I said, I I'm I'm burning out and I wanted to take my energy in the direction of showing solos how to make better money through the paid consultation because I would go out to eat with my three or four solo friends quite often. Mm -hmm. And I would talk about a consultation I had and how at the end of the end of the consultation, they wrote me a check. And I, so, so, so lunch is on me, everybody they paid in cash today, lunch is on me. And they'd be like, Oh, you're lucky. Your clients pay you, but they don't pay us. And I just thought that was ridiculous. Like there wasn't anything I was doing. My clients were any, weren't any different than their clients. Mm -hmm. I guess I just knew how to sell a consultation and perform and give them value. So I, I knew there were so many solo's not doing that. They were free, free, you know, free all over their website, right? Free consultation all over their website. How are you ever going to get anyone to pay you if you've got free consultation all over your website? I mean, there are some practice areas obviously that that that's the norm, and there's not much we can do about that. Personal injury or bankruptcy, for example, but a lot of other things you don't have to give it all away for free. Right. You just need to you need to decide what you're going to sell, and you're going to decide what you're going to give away for free. So I I figured there was something there, and I actually took some coaching to learn how to be a coach, and that led me to find coaching myself, that I needed coaching myself to build my business. And that's when, I don't know where I'm going with this, Davina, but that's sort of (laughs) when I learned to scale my business up, right? right? I finally found something. I finally found a way to defend foreclosures in a way that I could assign a lot of the work to a paralegal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this model. So, but before we get too far away from it, Hmm. I kind of want to go back a little bit. And I want to talk about this charging for consultations, because it's interesting. I was just having this discussion in, we've just been discussing this in my group mastermind with other women law firm owners. And uh, of course, many of them, many of my clients have, you know, they move very quickly to a pay for consultation um, model. And because it is my belief too that it's a great screening tool. If you have somebody who won't even pay you, you know, a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, or your hourly rate, or whatever it is, to meet with you and talk with you about their legal problem, then that's a good indicator that, you know, they're probably not going to be a good fit for you and be able to pay you your fees, right? So right. It, there, there's a lot of advantages to that. And also, you know, you can spend a lot of time, waste a lot of time with having. You know, meeting with people for free, and you don't have that kind of time to waste. And so, you know, there's a lot of advantages to that model. Did you know this kind of instinctively coming out? Because I do find that a lot, a lot of us when we first start our law practice, do that. That's what we do is we say, well, you know, I'm going to charge this low fee, because I'm a new lawyer, and Mm -hmm. I'm not going to charge for consultations, because I Mm -hmm. so desperately need clients. (laughs) And so when did this occur to you?
1: Well, this this is something I saw while I worked at Consumer Law Group. Um, the you know we were getting increasing. I remember the type of, of of work that sort of inspired it. We were getting more and more calls about predatory lending issues, and people were calling and saying, "I'm paying my mortgage every month, and they're not crediting me properly." So. My boss would schedule these people they would bring in. He would make them bring in like their entire payment history. And he'd pour over it for like two hours, two and a half hours. He'd go in the conference room with these people. And I, literally, I remember this one time he came out of the conference room and he, he leans on my door in my doorway and he goes, we got to start charging for these. And he goes into his office and I could hear him slump into his chair. And the next thing I know, there were several consultations that were scheduled for me where they had paid. And I don't know what the, the fee was that we were charging at the time. But I remember distinctly that the first person I, I met with who had paid for her consultation said, when I started talking and everything, she was, hang on, let me write this down. I'm paying for this. And we found that people weren't late when they paid. They were more attentive. They didn't drag their kids. They didn't get distracted by their phones. They were on. They brought the documents we asked them to bring. They took it much more seriously, and it was much more productive uh-huh. for everybody. So that was uh-huh. what I, I saw. And so when I went solo... I, I just kept that up. Now, I can't say that I was good. You know, you're saying how sometimes we we charge only a little bit because we were a new lawyer. It's true. I stumbled over quoting the rate for the first two or three times. And I, then I said, you've got to stop stumbling. Now, you got to stick with the, the number that comes out of your mouth. But that's fine. Practice, practice those numbers and just maybe think of it in advance. Like you have, you know, five, ten minutes on the call before you quote the rate. So start thinking about it sooner than later. And then eventually I drove my, my hourly rates up. And, you know, it, it isn't one of those things where it's like, oh, if this person will pay me $500, I'll do it. Like, don't get into that. I wouldn't fall into that trap. You know, the people who right. touch with a 10 foot pole that, oh, if they pay me this much, be careful of that. But right. otherwise, I think it's I think it's true. And you're sort of stuck with the amount you quote, but, you know, you learn from that as well. And I think that you know you know if you do charge i mean it it was like 20% of my gross annual revenues davina i mean if yeah. i had left that money on the table that's a huge amount of money you can generate over the course of a year you do one or two of these a week and you're charging 250 or 300 dollars times 40 weeks you know do right. the math on how many thousands of dollars you can do so don't minimize and i don't need to tell you this or your listeners this but don't minimize the value of yeah, doing paid consultations and you're right we, if it's yeah. And people, you know, people aren't, oh, I could, don't get me going down that road. I could just coach all around it right now, but I won't.
0: <laughs> I am tell you, you're very passionate about it. You're very passionate because you've seen a lot of people leave money on the table and not, and it also sends a message right from the beginning that I'm busy. My time is valuable, but you know, I, what you're, what you're going to be your experience, you're, you're, you're paying for this and what you're experiencing is going to be something that's a paid service, not a free service, right? So you can you
1: can give away, you can give away your time. You just need to decide what you do give away for free. I think if we all look and there's patterns, right? We all get the same calls about the same information and we basically have a script on how we how we counsel around that. And sometimes people call and like in Connecticut there's a date that, that's on a summons and people call and go, Oh my god, I have a court date next Tuesday and there's such a panic about this date they think is a court date on Tuesday next week. 'cause they're always yeah. Tuesdays, that they can't hear anything I'm saying. So I give away explaining what that date is, that they don't really have a court date, this is what it means, and they can get them out of their panic. And then yeah. so I'm I'm willing to give away that for free, which isn't that big a deal, because then it gets us we can then concentrate on, okay, now what's really going on and what can I sell them? And then they're right. keeping, they're listening. And then you know, anybody who who's so stuck on fees, like you don't answer the question What's the fee? You don't. You go. Oh, well, hang on. Let's talk for a few minutes. Let's figure it out. Because they're just asking out of fear. But the other, the other great thing about this is, is if you do it often enough, you're earning enough money that you can choose when to give away your time. You can choose how many pro bono matters to take per year. You can choose to spend 45 minutes on the phone with somebody when, when you normally might try to get them scheduled instead. But you go. You know what? I'm just going to help this person. You have the luxury when you're mm-hmm. earning the right amount of money to choose who to give away your time with and who to charge. That's that's really the lesson I think, is that if you're giving it away to everybody, you never really have the luxury. You're constantly hoping that that person you're giving away your time to will then be the person that opens their wallet and pays you $5,000. I don't think so, Right. sort of backwards thinking.
0: Um, Right, exactly. Paid paid consultations
1: actually lead to big
0: retainers. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me ask you this. What do you say to an attorney who says, you know, other attorneys refer people to me and I feel like I need to, you know, talk to them because they're referred by another attorney and I need to not charge for that. And I find that I make thousands of dollars if I have a conversation with them.
1: With with the with, Okay. Well, every, you know, you have to figure out whether this much free time actually does lead to real, you know, retainers mm-hmm. and... The other thing is I hear that a lot like, oh, well, when they come from that person, I feel like I can't charge. Why have you had a conversation with Joe and ask him if he has an expectation that you're going to work for free? Then you got to manage that relationship with Joe
0: because that's not fair. Okay. I don't really um, think that people I don't think that people who are referring generally have that expectation. I think these are stories we tell ourselves about it.
1: Exactly. And there's, again, there's a, oh, you came from Joe. Listen, here's what I offer. You know, I'll, I'm happy to, I, I know what your question is. Let's talk about A, B, and C. But if you need more help than that, then let's get you scheduled and this is what the charge will be. And, you know, if you're afraid they're going to say no, then you got to address that And or just practice. Put it at 50 bucks. And when people mm-hmm. start saying yes, then then put it at 100. Then keep raising it until you realize that they aren't saying no to any amount, that they think you're going to say $5,000 for all this value you're going to give them. And you say 450, and they're like, oh, I'll sign up for that all day long. But yeah, I think it's about managing. Um, and I always say to people, like, like I'll refer people to another attorney, and they go, what do you think their fees are? And I go, I never, I say, I never quote another attorney's fees. It's not onto me. I have no idea what they offer and right. how much they charge it. And they go, oh, okay, okay, okay. Like they don't demand that I provide a dollar figure. They're just afraid that it's going right. to be out of their range. That's usually what questions about fees are early on, is they're just afraid, It's just fear. And when you assure them it's not going to be thousands just to get on the phone with someone for 20 minutes, then then that fear goes away. Then they're reassured because right. the, the public thinks that attorneys just yeah. charge ridiculous amounts for no value. So when you start to spell out the value, and then you you know you quote a rate that's very affordable to them, they're just they're, you're their favorite person. You can get five star reviews all day long for doing that.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you next, kind of segueing away from uh, attorneys charging mm-hmm. to to in your own situation. You're you're in a practice area where you're actually you're dealing with people who say right up front, "I got financial problems." Okay, so they're coming in telling you, "I'm poor, I'm broke, <laughs> I've got financial problems." Right, right. and right. then I imagine that so many attorneys would then feel guilty charging these people who have just said that they are broken, they've got no money. So how did you work through the mental, or did you ever have an issue with mm-hmm. that? Did you have to work through sort of the mental uh, uh, mindset around money to right. not like kind of buy into their money story or not have it right. trigger your own money story?
1: Well, the funny thing is every time we, we, we sit down my husband and I to write our mortgage check every month, he, he looks at me, he goes, you did it again. I'm like, what, what? He says, you got money out of people who don't have any money, you know? Um, and it's, I, I, I have taken a lot of coaching around sales. It's sales. And, you know, do the cashiers at McDonald's feel guilty about, you know, the cost of the fries? Um, does the, the cashier at the at the grocery store feel bad about the cost of that gallon of milk? No, the person came to buy those fries or buy that gallon of milk, people call me, and they want help they have a problem it's actually i had an attorney who worked for me and she's a good friend of mine too who was not a great solo she had a really hard time charging and quoting consult fees but mm. she said she pointed out to me people are calling they're ready to buy and it was it was like it it blew it blew me so so give them something to buy so right Do I look at someone and go, ha-ha, I'm going to, you know, this person's desperate to save their house and I'm going to see how much money I can get out of them? No. I I say, this is what my fees are for this service. And they're based on data. The data, the fees are based on data of how much it costs for me to run a foreclosure defense through my firm. And we did this through KPIs. I can't remember what that's called. It's where you take every step of the case. Who does what? How much Mm -hmm. do I pay that person? Or what is the value of their time? How much time does it take? Times, number of hours, number of dollars. And then you multiply it by a, a multiplier in order to add in profit and overhead and things like that. And I know so how much it costs to run. Indicators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank You're- you, thank you. I know how to run, I know how much it costs to run a foreclosure defense through my practice because I assign most of the work to a paralegal. And so my KPIs are X and I charge 3X and we charge it over time. And I actually do a flat fee, flat fee monthly. So that. Has been very sustainable
0: and it's very, predictable for um, them. It's predictable, predictable. for and, their clients,
1: exactly. And the monthly is a fraction of what their mortgage would be. So to to be apologetic for charging them a third of what their mortgage would be right. is is just I'm look I'd be, I'd be apologetic about the wrong thing because if they can't pay that, then they really can't pay a mortgage, and maybe they should move out and find a new right. place to live. You know, and that isn't really that's not not like black or white, oh you're in or you're out. It's just that if someone isn't willing to pay that, they're not mm-hmm. a good fit for my firm. Right. 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 They don't get and so it. I Something imagine, else is I, going on. Yeah.
0: So I imagine then there's what you've done is you sort of created a a process or, or a strategy for sort of helping them see how they not only can they afford to hire you, but it's it's going to be much more cost effective for them to hire you than it is to continue down the path they're on. Right.
1: Yes, and uh, and you know I like that I do a sort of a monthly subscription. That's not really a subscription service, but they pay monthly because they see it coming out of their account every month, and I think it inspires most of them to get the work done they need to do, so that I can help them, so that we can get mm-hmm. out of foreclosure faster. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will pay for a year, and I I can't get them on the phone. I can't get them to do what they do, but we keep getting their money, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to apologize for that. They mm-hmm. have the option of using me. We're, we're here for them. We'll help you save your house, or you can sit there. And as long as the court's not pushing the case forward, you know, you, you think you have all the time in the world, that's on you. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's the option I give people. And then I think it, it helps sustain my business so that I can continue to do this work for as many
0: people as possible. Right. I, the reason I ask you that question is obviously not because I think you should feel guilty or bad, but because I oh, want right. I want you to share your story so other people can hear it and go, and it might help them, other women law firm owners, it might help them to get over their stuff and start saying, you know, like, it is not your responsibility to, to manage another person's emotions around their money or to be in their right. pocketbook. It's, it's your I've, responsibility I've to another, say I'm I've, offering this thing for you to help solve a problem, and you could choose it or not.
1: That's I've, I've heard costs. another coach say, get, get, your, get your mind out of, out of their wallet right? It's, yeah, it's not your exactly. business. And, and it's not an, we don't, no lawyer should, I don't like to use that way. Let's, would a man make a decision on fees about emotion? I think that if you have data, if you say, okay, I do traffic tickets, I do DUIs, I do, you know, no fault divorce, whatever the term is, right? Simple divorce. Right. This is the t- amount of time I spend. This is who in my office spends this much time. This is what we pay them. And this is how much my time, you know, we, We came up with a formula that my paralegal spends about an hour per week per client, and I spend about an hour per month per client. And then there's all the other administrative stuff. So when you lay out the life of a file and you figure out how much time it actually takes, then you you price accordingly. So that's a formula. And that helps with the person who tries to negotiate your fee. Oh, could you do a little better? And you say, no, because this is the formula. We've determined this is what it costs to help you. So this is what you pay and they'll go, okay. Or they'll walk away and, and that's fine. So you have a procedure in place and a policy in in place that this is our fee for this type of file. Um, You as the firm owner can always make exceptions. I'm making lots of exceptions right now because of COVID and the way foreclosures are being handled in my state and and in the country and things like that. So I've had to go outside the box a little and you always have that option, but I'm keeping an eye on my numbers.
0: I know uh you know we've had moratorium on foreclosures I mean are you you guys are you dealing with that and how are you dealing with that because that's that kind right. of brought that business to a halt so yeah. how did you sort of pivot and shift and deal with that in your law firm
1: So in the last year so this is um middle of May 2021 and so you know things basically shut down in second week of third week of March of 2020 um including foreclosure defense so I had a lot in the pipeline. I had a lot of people, a lot of people who were in the process of modifying their mortgages, so we saw those people through the through to the end we mm-hmm. We've had other people continue on that process of applying and and getting mortgage modifications and watching them and guiding them through that process. The cases the people who were behind before March of twenty twenty who might have already been in, been in foreclosure, there's no real moratorium that applies to them, and I don't want to I don't want anybody listening to this and go, yes, there is, but like you know, there's some rules and some exceptions, but there's been a lot of activity on cases that were already pending. And we have a judicial process here, so those were just sitting for a long time and then now they're they're picking back up. So I've been able to I've been getting calls consistently from people whose cases are waking up. And in the meantime, I will say that um between last summer and, and this winter, I was doing a lot more consultations. I was calling people who had said they would maybe call back and talk to me about that. I was sort of scrounging in my leads and my old, you know, all the notes from all the people who call the office to see who could I, who could I sell something to? I need to bridge a budget gap right now. Who could I give some value to? Who could I help with, you know, something for, for an hourly fee? And I was finding that would, I was selling a lot of my time by the hour, but when you have a pure flat fee practice where you're only doing an hour per month per client, you shouldn't have to sell your time by the hour but that helped. And knowing how to do the paid consultation really saved me.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you also help people fight, like if somebody's trying to collect a debt, Them correct. So I'm curious, and this is just, I'm just curious uh, about why you haven't included bankruptcy in your practice. Because I would imagine when you have a lot of people who are dealing with debt collection issues and foreclosure issues, bankruptcy may be A solution for them in some cases.
1: Absolutely. Um, And I probably give away more business to bankruptcy attorneys than I keep. But I think that um, one is I would have had to learn a whole new area of law and I was not mentored in it. We didn't do it at Consumer Law Group when I went on my own and I wasn't feeling desperate for a cash generator. Right. I knew Mm -hmm. how to generate cash through the debt defense as long as I wasn't misleading people into paying their debts and, and struggling with debt defense when they should have just gone to file bankruptcy. So I became very, you know, I created a network with the local bankruptcy attorneys, told them what I do, said, if you got someone who can't file bankruptcy because of whatever, a little over income, they have an asset that, that's just preventing them, call send them my way. You know, and I said, if they really should file, I'll send them back to you. I, and also, when you think about it, if you're developing, in my my mentality around it was, I was developing a debt defense practice. If I could have earned more pushing them into a Chapter Seven than defending them, then I would have. That's a conflict, right. I think. That's okay. a conflict. Pushing everybody to to this thing that's more profitable would, I think, have created the conflict if the person really didn't need it, right? And I think yeah. there are. It's very individualized, but if you don't owe that much, you probably don't need to do that to your credit or, or the expense of the full bankruptcy versus the strategies I've developed for debt defense in my state.
0: Right. So you actually wrote a book, uh, Got Debt, yes. Dispatches from the Frontlines of America's Financial Crisis. What made you decide to tell that story in that way? And why was that important to you?
1: I think that the way I did it was I would, things would happen and I'd write about them. Things that happened, I had a blog, like in 2008, 2009, I got my website, and I think I just started writing things as blog posts, you know, 1,000 words, 500 words, something like that, and, and I would keep that, keep that material, because it was interesting to me, I would tell a story, like, I can't believe this happened, I got to write about it, and I think I also had a fantasy of maybe writing a novel, and, and sort of including these things, and then I in early 2015, I got a writer. I started working with a, a, a guy who's a, who was a former attorney, and he wanted to be a writer. And he would already written some amazing work. And we were mm-hmm. talking, and I said, "You know, I really could get my blog. You know, I, I don't have time to blog. I just am not doing it." And he's like, "Well, why don't I help you with that?" And he, We got to know each other. He understood what I did, and he started writing blog posts for me. So some of the in, some of the material in the book was actually his material that I've I've modified and edited. So he helped generate a lot of the of the work in the book but it was always from stories that that I was going through or things that were happening. And when it came, when we got a couple hundred pages of stuff together, we put it in a book. And the tough part was editing it in a cohesive way. This is actually volume two. The first volume is kind of a hot mess, but this one was a little more cohesive. And I just think it's interesting. And I've been told it's a good book about adulting, like a girlfriend, a lawyer friend of mine read it. So I'm giving it to my teenagers because you talk so much about money and the mentality around money and the money around mentality around credit credit scores it's important for my girls to learn that yeah and and i, I, I might have done. to get
0: that for my my twin <laughs> nephews you just they are just uh they're matriculating they've just gotten into mm. college and so this might be a great time for me to give them that do you find it i i to before we have to wrap up i want to make sure we sort of touch on marketing a little bit because do you find it to be uh to have been a good marketing tool for you I probably could have done
1: a better job launching it and doing all of that. I think part of that was me and my shyness around it. Um, I, I, what it is too. Any book you write, and it doesn't have to be 250 pages. It can be 25 or 50 pages, because I learned this from someone who wrote a book about marketing. It's a business card nobody will ever throw away. So it could be a great thank you. Hey, you know, thank you for this. Or you know, I get on the phone with people and maybe they've helped me, right? Maybe you're on the phone with a new potential client, and they don't end up hiring me for whatever reason, but they've counseled me through something. You you know we've all gotten into these conversations where you talk about your parents or your siblings or something, and you get some insights. You can if you can send it as a thank you gift. I get a lot of people who are freaked out about credit, and I go, look, just get my book. Just get my book. You'll understand better why I say you shouldn't worry about your credit score. So it can be one of these things where you don't have to. Reinvent the wheel every time someone calls you and is freaked out about their credit score or, or the practice area. You can just yeah, guide just, them to, and you know, and I give away all the proceeds. I didn't want to use my client's stories and then put the money in my pocket. So periodically, I'll take the the what do you call profits, whatever Amazon pays me, and I write a check to an organization. Yeah, I just
0: published a book uh, myself, and it's uh, it's on law firm marketing uh, mm-hmm. in the virtual age, and so. Uh, there, there's tremendous, it, it is such a helpful tool when you get asked a lot of sort of foundational questions about a topic right. over and over again right. to be able to say, right. here, right. this This right. is a great place for you to start. Right. Um, right. And you also get a lot of local press. And I want you to talk about sort of how that came about and how you, how you created that for yourself, because I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening who will think, oh, I'd love to do, get more local press and raise my profile in the local yeah. community.
1: This, well, you know it's it's I'm thinking it's sort of like a five pointed star, so the writer I was using he would be like, "Hey, you should write an editorial about a B or C, and I'm like, "Great, write it for me right and so <laughs> he, you know up. he would do that so it's it's true it's it's like you've gotta set aside a little time to go when you're really emotional about something or when really something piques your interest and you're like on the edge of your seat about it. take a half an hour and crank out five hundred to seven hundred fifty words." And save that. That has value. You could use it in the moment, send it in to the local paper as an editorial, or you can use it, you keep, you save up enough of those and they're they're your book. The other thing is, you know, there's some pretty noteworthy, noteworthy, newsworthy things related to foreclosure in my state. Um, One was um, there was a very, very high profile murder. Mm
0: -hmm. Very,
1: very difficult, terrible story. And the guy who killed his wife went into foreclosure. And I was sure, I was just like, I'm going to be the one that the news comes to with questions about the foreclosure process, right? I just decided that the right. fact that they're covering this foreclosure, I wanted to be the one to give the commentary, whether it was on camera or just helping the reporter. So so you got to be a little obnoxious sometimes and be like, I want to be the one to talk about that. And then we have another problem here in the state related to home foundations that are crumbling. And so I wanted to make sure that I was the Attorney voice related to what do homeowners do? You know, some people just have to walk away from their homes, which means they'll go into foreclosure. So I wanted to be again the the, the perspective there. So I think that anybody who's got a, a little what, what is it, like your pet thing, right? Your pet thing about divorces, your pet thing about DUIs, your pet thing about your bank about bankruptcy. Find a way to you know be the voice of that when the the, the press or, or you know need information about it and and it's not that hard to do you keep a reporter's business card in your rolodex a couple of business cards in your rolodex and and it's not that hard
0: yeah for sure i that's i was in marketing for years and was involved in getting a lot of pr and stuff for a, a big law firm i worked with and it is you make that you create those relationships you know with those people and mm-hmm. say hey i can i can be there and i think the other thing is being available being available when they call because reporters are on deadline
1: Oh, and, and we have a new policy in the office because I get this message and I it was like four hours later, I didn't understand what the message was. And I was like to my staff, I was like, anytime a reporter calls, you find me, you put exactly. a 911 text to me, there's a reporter who wants to, because they need to be in your office in a half an hour with a camera because yeah. they've got to go yeah. live at four, four o'clock or 4.30 or five o'clock. So, and and they, they have to they have to absorb and digest so much information to make a comprehensive story that Don't be shy with the information overload them and they'll know what to filter out. But they're like, oh, my God, thank you. You just saved me. So like trying to get my head around the Connecticut foreclosure process. Like, how was I going to do that in a half an hour? So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I probably keep it probably keep a jacket handy, especially with all people who are sort of working much more casually these days uh, because of uh, Zoom court. Why not? To keep a jacket and some lipstick handy or something. I, I right? use um, I use a scarf. <laughs> a scarf is my it dresses up anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a great tip. That's a great tool. So I, I love it. So and did you did you notice an imp have you noticed an impact since people were kind of used to seeing you, you know, on the news around these kinds of stories?
1: Well, I'd like to think that it 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 involves an immediate uptick in the calls, but you know, I think that somebody who needs bankruptcy, somebody who needs a foreclosure defense, isn't going to isn't like waiting around and going oh well until I saw you on TV I wasn't going to call right it's like you're a lot of what we do as lawyers is time sensitive I mean um, I think if it makes you more visible in Google I think if it lends you more cred when someone is googling you before they actually call you because that's what people do they get they might get your name from yeah. their attorney or their neighbor or their their somebody but they're going to then go and Google you so Google yourself what comes up and what do you want to be in there and it helps that it's rounded out with TV appearances, you know, and you can link to them on your website as well, usually, or put the, the NBC or the CNN logo on your website. And that lends a little cred. But if the person, the person in crisis, they don't really have the luxury of like going with the person with the most TV stuff. They might actually be turned off by too much of that, thinking you're, you're not approachable or not reachable. So yeah. I don't overplay that stuff. I don't play it up too much because I don't think that that's what's going to make them pick up the phone.
0: Right. Right. Because they may think they may think, well, she's out of my out of my then, or out of my price yeah, range well, she must or something expensive like that yeah.
1: or something. And yeah. so, I mean, I'm not saying don't put it on your site. It's just now that I think about it, now that you ask the question, you know what? It's an ego thing, I'll admit, because I have the I did a um, I did a little rant. I do these little short videos and I post them on my YouTube channel and I put them on my Facebook page and then LinkedIn and stuff. And so they get some views. But the one about the high profile murder that by far has the most views of all my videos. And it's more of an ego thing like, oh, yeah, that one's getting some play.
0: Yeah, uh, that's you interesting know. because I actually didn't see that one when I was like, but I was looking on your site. And so I guess I missed that one, but I'll have to go look at it now because I'm curious. Yeah, it's, on my, um. it's on
1: my YouTube channel. It's just it's <laughs> okay. just the one about the particular murder or whatever. Yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah, um, that, I'm sure that that was probably very interesting for you. Right. So how long have you had? I didn't ask you this earlier. How long have you had your own practice? I went solo in October, 2006,
1: about four years after becoming an attorney. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Hmm? Okay, great. And, and you have, do you have, you have some another attorney who works with you in your practice?
1: You know, I did, but in this last year, I've shrunk my staff. They've, um, two of my staff, my associate and a paralegal went to a closing firm, a real estate closing firm, because real estate is crazy. So um, they, they're at a, a friend's firm working for, working for her. And I'm, thrilled for them and it's, it's working out. Okay. Um, yeah, I want Steve to say kind of as, far as, starting my, as far as starting my own practice, I started in 06, but it really wasn't until the middle of 2014, time in 2014, when I really hit that burnout and that wall and decided to make some changes that I really call it, that I really have a business. So mm-hmm. um, it took me a while to figure out that I really like business and I really like talking about business. And I like running my practice like a business. That's fun yeah. and interesting.
0: Yeah. So what... If you had, before we wrap up here, let me just ask you one last question then. If you had some gold nugget that you could share or a piece of advice for another woman law firm owner who may be behind you kind of in the growth journey, what would that be?
1: I think my big regret that I didn't do enough of, and it's ironic since I help with people with money problems, is I really wasn't working off of a budget. I was very intimidated about laying all the numbers out. What am I actually spending? What do things cost? And a household budget as well as your business budget. I think your household budget comes first. What do you really want to be making and why? And, you know, I I, I learned I had to have this sort of shoved on me when I was taking business coaching, which is it's probably really smart to have someone come in and clean our house every week. Why should I spend the money and the time time, I should say, cleaning my own toilets, for example? So Add that into your household budget. You know, do a, Do you want to live in a bigger house, better house, different school system, better car? You know, pay off your student loans sooner. All those things create a really aggressive. Well, no, I wouldn't say aggressive. Create three household budgets. What are you spending now? What you know? Would you like to be spending? And what's your fantasy budget? And then tailor how your business you know throws off profit according to those budgets, and nice. make decisions based on data with with your budgets. And I didn't do enough of that soon enough, but. Doing a budget yeah. and staying on top of my budget in this last year of COVID has kept me sane. I was so nervous about reduction of, of revenue and how that was going to affect my ability to pay payroll and serve my clients and live my life. And the budget's really helped.
0: It's kind of interesting, too, because you, what something that you said earlier uh, is that you also worked the phones and you got more creative mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. getting clients and getting revenue and getting money in the door and all that because... So uh, I'm listening to something recently, uh, a book, and the author was talking about creating, your, creating the life you want, because I, I love your idea of the three budgets, creating the life you want. When you start putting down what I want, you see the amount of increase that you need, and then, then you turn on that salesperson in you and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go after adding this amount of money. And yeah. when you're looking at the data, and you're much more focused on, you know, here it is in black and white. This is what I'm making now. And this is the lifestyle mm-hmm. I'm living. And yeah. I want to live this lifestyle. How much more is it actually going to take? Not a not a fantasy, but a right. real actual numbers. If I sat down and looked at, if I want to take three vacations a year, how much do my vacations cost? If I want to buy a bigger house, how much is that additional amount in mortgage? And adding that up and saying, okay, I'm going to need an additional X amount per month. Now, what am I going to do to get that? So exactly. it can work, but your budget yeah. can work for you in, in different ways, not just as a, you know, a lot of people view budgets as being punitive, you know, like, uh, I got budget I think right. If you, <laughs> don't,
1: if you don't think you have money issues or money mindset issues, doing this budget is going to bring them out unless you've been doing it and and you're past this point. But anybody yeah. who isn't, isn't already being honest about how they want to live and how much money, you know, and it's. It's important yeah. to budget in um, enough to put aside for your own retirement. Um, it's important to budget, you know, I use the profit first method as well, which really mm-hmm. is helpful for that. And it's important to put aside enough to um, have extra for the emergencies and stuff that, you know, or, you know, I had a, a point in time where I thought I might have to help support my mother. What mm-hmm. amount is she going to need? And I started budgeting that in. So it's great. I I, I wish I had done it sooner and used it as a as a tool. Um, yeah yeah
0: more, it's not more sexy but it but it definitely it gets sexier when you start to see money adding it, up it is right it's
1: places. tedious it's so tedious at first and then it becomes exciting and interesting and fun it's true it's weird, yeah. but it's it yeah. yeah
0: well i sarah i so appreciate you being here today i've enjoyed our conversation so much
1: thanks for giving me a chance to talk so much i like telling my story and i love hearing about other women's origin stories or other women attorneys where what happened what their evolution is so i'm Going to go back through all your episodes and make sure I don't miss one.
0: (laughs) We have some. We have some good ones. I'm. I'm very. uh, We've been doing this for our third year, and I've interviewed. We, as a matter of fact, this week we're celebrating our hundredth episode, which was published last week. So
1: good job. Yeah, a hundred episodes,
0: and I've interviewed some really terrific women lawyers and uh, other experts to help us out as we're growing our businesses and, and you have just been added to that. That list. Fabulous. I appreciate it so much. What a great interview. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The league is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the league in the coming year, including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com league. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash LEAGUE. LEAGUE is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the LEAGUE.